Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome, everyone, to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. This is a podcast that will inspire you on your spiritual journey and hopefully bring you hope and just new ways of thinking about you, yourself, your life, your spiritual life, and the awakening that we're all in the middle of. I hope that this you are blessed by this podcast. I know that you will be. Before I start, I want to remind you that we do rely solely on donations, so appreciate everyone who has donated in the past and in the future. And you can do that at thespiritualform.org. I also have a survey out for all your listeners who want to hear from you. So you can go to the website for that, or if you're not on the newsletter, you can subscribe at thespiritualform.org. Thanks so much for joining us. I am excited to introduce my guest, Howard Eisenberg. Howard's a medical doctor with additional postgraduate training in both psychology and psychiatry. He's been a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont. On a more personal level, he's been on a lifelong quest to discover the true nature of reality. He was awarded the first postgraduate degree at McGill University for his parapsychological research on telepathy. And almost a half a century ago, Howard authored his first trailblazing book, Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Exploration of the Mind. And his new book, Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic, is the culmination of his successful quest to learn how reality works. So that's a lot, Howard. <laughs> Welcome. Sure, sure is. Taking over a half century <laughs> to discover it. I love that. Well, it does, it does kind of date you a little bit. <laughs> well, not, not in a way that uh, isn't advantageous in this case because it gives me the depth. Absolutely. I'd be proud of that. Anybody who's been <laughs> on a quest for a half century, you know, more power to you. Um, so I want to start, as I usually do, by asking you to um, tell your story. And then before we get into, well, let me, let's me let start with your message first. What's your overall message? If you were to culminate that in a, a few sentences, what's your message to everyone? Okay, so to jump ahead, the reason I wrote the book, and I'll, we'll go back in the okay. history, previous history before that, in my story. But the reason I wrote this book is I felt a call. I was aware of tremendous problems in our world at all levels. And I saw more and more catastrophic developments. And as I was imagining some of these things happening, they actually were happening in the news. I was reading about them. And it got to a point where I could really literally anticipate various things that were happening, whether it was uh, climatic disruptions, whether it was uh, political and, and actual war, um, the, the stock market, weird stuff. Um, but it was all very negative, very, very dark. And I saw an increasing sense of divisiveness amongst people all over the world. Um, for all types of reasons, but with phenomenal um, stimulation of fear and anger, uh, outrageous behavior. Uh, and I thought like, wow, it's almost like the, the biblical notion of almost end times approaching, like everything. Um, we can't reverse climate change. We can best moderate, but we can't get our heads around to do that. We weren't able to manage the pandemic because we weren't able to connect and collaborate and care for each other. So I wrote it as a wake-up call to help people understand that it's not an accident that all these bad things are happening at all. And the reason is because we forgot our connection to our inner source from where we come and how we're ultimately all connected. Ultimately, as the mystics call it, it's oneness of the allness. And we're not just supposed to love thy neighbor or obey a golden rule because it's a law, because it has a lot of history behind it. It's because it makes sense. Life goes better. Um, that's a long answer, perhaps, okay. to the question. <laughs> but that's, that was it. I, I felt because of what I see, and I thought I'd come to know, I had to speak out. I, I had to at least try to wake people up. 
Okay. Okay, great. So we'll come back to that because that's certainly the crux of of, of my, my message and ministry mm -hmm. as well. There's, mm -hmm. We are living in interesting times. We're not here by any accident, and we are mm -hmm. here to you know, sh shift, shift the paradigm, shift how things are going so, that, so mm -hmm. that we can live how we are meant to live. Let's go back then to how you've gotten to where you are today, okay. and what's, um, what's generally your story? So uh, as a young child, and when I say that, like back several years of age, I remember being very curious about everything, uh, even odd things like, you know, being on a merry-go-round and experiencing how I sense the world differently, <laughs> um, um, lying on the floor and imagining that the ceiling was my floor and what it would be like if I was walking from the ceiling down. So you're playing with different types of awareness. Um, and then when I got to around adolescence, around age 12 or so, I started becoming interested in books and in, in, in reading, um, initially science fiction. And what I enjoyed about science fiction initially was it was so imaginative. It was so speculative. And I noticed as I was reading some of these science fiction books, starting again in my adolescence around age 12, that some of the things that were science fiction, both in terms of the content of these novels, these books, but even sometimes on the, the cover art, were starting to become realities. Like I was reading about you know, spacemen and, and the spaceships before we had a space program at all. And the diagrams that they had on these covers of the spacesuits, they looked like the ones we eventually developed. And, um, and all types of the apparatus they use as communicators and so on, we now have with our you know, cell phone technology and so on. So I started to see that what seemed to be just speculative imagination, and these weren't scientists who were just trying to uh, extrapolate from their data, that there could be a connection between imagination and reality. So at first I was just playing with imagination just for the variety of ways of experiencing things. But then I came to understand there's a connection, potentially, a very, very important connection between imagination and reality. Another one that our culture has, has missed or, or, or denigrated, um, we're told, for example, in primary school when, when children are daydreaming, and I was very much a victim of this, stop daydreaming, <laughs> pay attention. Um, and, and yet, Going into the other realm of awareness and consciousness can be very rich for so many things. For, for one thing, stress relief these days, uh, for creativity, to come up with all types of wonderful things, whether it's music, whether it's visual arts, whether it's prose, whether it's poetry. Uh, that, that's where it comes from. And so that was my, my initial appeal, like the curiosity of awareness, the curiosity about the relationship between imagination and things that happen. And then as I was just extending my reading, uh, I would go to, at that point, independent small bookstores and buy paperbacks and not un, uh, uncommonly come up with 12 paperbacks in a pile. I didn't even have bags then, carrying them so proudly. Um, and I eventually discovered that there was some serious research going on in what was called parapsychology by uh, Dr. J.B. Ryan in uh, North Carolina. And, uh, and he was looking at whether there was a possibility of having uh, awareness of things that seem to be beyond our physical senses, and even perhaps an ability at times to influence things beyond our uh, apparent physical abilities. For example, like um, laying on of hands, distant healing, where there seems to be some type of connection transmission in a healing way, uh, and yet we can't measure it with our uh, electronic instrumentation, so to speak, or block it in some cases, because some people can do it with prayer, as you might know. Mm -hmm. So I became really fascinated in that research, and I actually eventually went out and met him, by the way. Uh, took a bus all the way down from, at that time, Montreal to uh, go see him uh, in North Carolina. And I was fascinated that there was like serious research now going on on this. I'll go back to it, connect, connection between imagination and reality. And I was also, when I was younger, um, and maybe now too, when I say I feel called, um, I, 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 was, I had to speak my mind. I had to uh, march to the beat of my own drummer, um, not, not because of stubbornness and certainly not because of ego. It's just that the curiosity led me where it led me, and I wasn't going to just be pressured because that's how things were done, or that's how most people see things. I, I had to find my own truth. And uh, eventually went on in my studies uh, academically to do a joint degree in medicine and psychology, graduate psychology at McGill. And for my thesis research, I chose the topic of telepathy. Uh, 
And it wasn't uh, coincidental that I, I, I chose as a strategy behind all of this, because at that time, the head of that psychology department was the very famous psychologist, D.O. Hebb. And all this was Montreal, Canada, McGill University. He at one time was also the president of the American Psychological Association. He was worldwide esteemed. And he had said in print that he categorically rejected all of the evidence for psychic phenomena, even though sometimes statistically it was more impressive than that in the more general realm of psychological research, because he considered it, and this was his word, a priori impossible, and then saying it sort of theoretically impossible. And he even went on to say, because he, he was outspoken, that he admits his prejudice, even said himself as his prejudice. Um, so I decided not just to do this research, which I thought was fascinating, but to do it there, um, because I was trying to open things up for other people who had interest and were just being dismissed as, 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 as quacks or nuts or various uh, terms, unfortunately, in derogatory way that had been thrown at people in this field. And I, I did succeed in that research and um, went on to teach it as a credit course at the University of Toronto. Um, and then picked up other things. I was very interested always, not only through the curiosity, but also helping people. So I like to share things uh, in a way I mostly have helped people historically and currently, in my, in my understanding of it, is by helping them become more aware broadly. So that's the wake-up call. So I work as a medical psychotherapist, and that's largely what I'm doing. I'm not prescribing medications. I'm helping people become aware of other ways they could see things, other ways they could process it, and other choices. And now there's always choice. Always, no matter what. Once you know how to go back to a deeper level where you're not so distracted and caught up in patterns, it's infinite in terms of that resourcefulness, as you know. Well, I love your story. I I, I love how you first start out as the kid, the daydreaming kid. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know that we do we we mm -hmm. we want to tamp down on the spirit of our kids when they're doing this amazing thing they're daydreaming creating it's like pay attention get in line and generally speaking when we do tests of creativity the younger kids are definitely much more creative and by the way as an aside do you know what profession is one of the least creative of all when they test adults uh education psychologists oh okay Interesting. you know so the people who are supposedly you know uh, masters of understanding the mind are some of the poorest when it comes to the ability to think creatively on these tests. Very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, um, I just I think that's one of the places where where we're just losing so much potential by by telling our kids stop, <laughs> stop daydreaming. Yeah, <laughs> you know, stop creating. Um, I, I also think it's just so interesting that. You had this kind of opposition at McGill when it came to you know telepathy and and the paranormal, and it rather than you know turn around and go someplace that you might have been more welcome, you kind of went right right in right into the the rejection area. <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> Which, yeah, yes. and it, 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 it's interesting. It's like the metaphor I use in martial arts where they train young children to split wooden boards with their bare hands in one blow and I explain the way they do it is not by hitting the board hard. They're taught to hit through and beyond the board. So you don't hit the obstacle. You go for your goal. Right. So that's why right. I approached it. So yes, in a way, it was an obstacle. And there's even a further backstory. As I mentioned quickly, I did a joint degree in psychology and medicine. And I had to get permission because there's two different faculties at the University of McGill. And they denied it. And they said, you can't do it. No one's ever done this before. And I said, but just because it hasn't been done before, is that a reason not to go forward? Isn't this supposed to be a center meeting knowledge, meeting edge? And then they said, well, every student has a student ID number on the computer system. You'd be in two different faculties. And I said, aren't they supposed to be here to help us? As supposed to be. This is true, by the way. Uh, and the third one was, we wouldn't know how to calculate your tuition because you wouldn't exactly be here totally 200% more time, <laughs> still be the same library. I said, I'm not asking for a discount. And eventually they said, yes, they relented. So I know those two degrees. So, but that's also an example, Carol, of what I've learned in my book. And I now I've connected the dots and understand in a much more powerful way. And back to where we partly started with the backstory about imagination and reality. So I imagined doing this joint program because it really wasn't advertised. No one had done it before. And, um, Yes, initially there was opposition. There would you, you know, three levels of it, so to speak, to block me, and most people would, would give up. Um, 
And I, I persisted. It was more in my mind, like, why not? Um, my mother taught me. She was, I, I joke she was my first guru in a way. And, and she taught me there's no such thing as can't. Love it. And it's really, you know, I didn't realize as a child, obviously, and even as a young adult, how wise and powerful that was. When yeah. you have more of a, you know, can-do mindset, cup half full mindset, wow, what a difference. Yeah, and I think so many people have their minds programmed on I can't, I can't, I can't. You know, whatever happened in their childhood that they weren't raised with a mom that said, That's you right. can do anything. I, so they're, they had this constant chatter in their mind, I can't, I can't, or, or stop, or I, you know, I've been rejected, right. go somewhere else, or I'm bad, and all of that. Yeah, we call that uh, in psychiatry negative self-talk. Uh, or limiting beliefs. Uh, and that's part, again, my work is, is in educating people in psychotherapy to become aware. That's just a dialogue that goes on in your mind. That doesn't mean you have to tap into that stream, that you have to keep watching that channel. Right, change <laughs> that, the channel. You know, yeah, change the website, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then showing them how, you know, various ways how to do that, as opposed to just trying to explain it away or using drugs to suppress it. And then you know, in, in my work in the university, obviously that's, again, ed educational, increasing awareness of people. And I worked in many different levels at different universities. And my books, my, this is my second, as you said, I also had a national radio series in Canada through the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called Odyssey. Again, just meeting with interesting people to expand awareness. Um, hopefully I'll find other ways too. <laughs> just giving you some brief sample. But to me, that's the common denominator, you know, that, you know, my mission, uh, helping others by educating them by helping them. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating that you, you're not doing the medicine. You know, you're, you're a doctor. You're, you, you know, I have, I don't have the best relationship personally with the medical world. <laughs> Many I, people don't. <laughs> <laughs> full disclosure, um, full no, disclosure. Because it, because it seems as though that, that um, profession tends to look at a problem and then apply medicine, look at a problem and then apply medicine. And it completely avoid the system, which is a bigger system, and the cause. So it's kind of like a more of a mechanic thing. And the, the idea that you're working in psychotherapy and psychiatry and not applying medicine is so refreshing. Because it's higher medicine. <laughs> you know, I, I once had a bit of a debate with a patient who was a surgeon. And, and um, although he was my patient, he was sort of arrogantly suggesting, you know, he was superior to me because he's a surgeon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you need instruments to do your work. I do his words. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> he, he, he couldn't. He couldn't. There's nothing. There's nowhere to go yeah, with that. <laughs> he gave up. <laughs> right. But to me, it is. It, it, it's because, you know, and, and even things like placebo effect, which some people have heard of the so-called sugar pill thing, uh, where you're sometimes fooled to think you're taking a real drug. And all the new drugs that come out uh, that want to be put out on the market first have to go through experimental trials where they're compared in part to placebos. In other words, beyond being safe, are they more effective? Are they more helpful than just an inert chemical substance like sugar in a capsule? That's a placebo. And when the patients don't know which is the real one, because they, they, they can make them look the same on the outside or taste the same, many of them, approximately one third, have the expected result of the so-called medication, even though it's totally their imagination. And that's what our training. Now, if by contrast, we train people to get to, because all they're doing is imagining, they're imagining that's, you know, drug they're taking is helping them. And it helps them. And by the way, it even works in surgery. There's something called sham surgery, where, where they'll pretend uh, this is not done commonly. I wouldn't want to alarm any of your listeners and viewers. Uh, but they'll pretend they're doing a deeper surgery than they are. Like, for example, for the knee, they'll sometimes make an incision, pretend that they're going deeper you know, into the joint and not at all, and just sew it back up. And many of the patients afterwards say whatever was bothering before in their knee is resolved. They've even done it with uh, angioplasty for the heart. Um, again, it's not commonly. These were special experimental situations. But when people really can believe sufficiently, and which again is the power of imagination, we're talking about this, it, it has physical effects. Well, and I think, I, I think ultimately you don't want to even have to believe that this medicine or this placebo is a medicine 
but back up and actually imagine your cells healing yes. in your body. <laughs> that's even, and, and that's where eventually we want people to go more directly and have that understanding. Right. Um, one of the things that concerns me with my medical colleagues, uh, I, I'm not defending them all, obviously, um, is that many of them, they're not just mechanistic in how they work with people, which is dis discourages patients from their own participation with their potential mind abilities, but they're so negative in their prognoses often. Like, you know, you they'll say you have this problem and unfortunately, you know, that's your future, uh, either because of your so-called genetic history, family history, lifestyle, community injuries, whatever it might be. Um, and I guess me so angry when they're basically saying don't hope and hope has power. Absolutely. Back to nice reality, you know? <laughs> right, right. I know. I do think that overall, our world has a crisis in imagination. Like we... We've swallowed so much conditioning and we believe so many of our basic beliefs, we can't even see them because we're just, it's like background, you know, it's like water for a fish. We can't even see them and we can't imagine ourselves out of it because it's always been that way. And there are so, there's so much of this that we, we, I don't even think, I think we could spend a whole lifetime thinking about what else we could imagine, but, but we don't know how to do it or we've lost, we've lost it. Or we're just so distracted, or we're just lazy. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, well, I, I do think we once knew it and had it, practiced it much better historically. Um, I, I think absolutely, for one, we're distracted. Um, it's not uncommon, as we all know, when you see people out and about or in a restaurant, maybe in a family gathering, they have their cell phones out and they're texting or whatever else they do on their phones in the middle of, you know, their so-called company or people walking, uh, you know, distracted by it, sometimes dangerously on the sidewalk or, or near traffic. Uh, that's not uncommon. Um, we don't calculate things anymore in our head because we, we have smartphones that do that. We don't have to remember things because we have smartphones that remember that, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the more we depend on these smarter phones, the dumber we're becoming you know, in the process. So part of that, again, is distraction. Um, part of that too is overwhelm. It's like the expression, you know, trying to drink from a fire hose, <laughs> not very comfortable, um, but we're just so overwhelmed by so much. Uh, and partly, sadly, it's also some people uh, who manipulate um, what they want us to think and believe. And we're seeing this tremendously these days, as you know, on probably news media, particularly social media itself. And it's frightening because there was a time we'd all, or most of us would, who, let's say, watch TV or listen to radio, we would tune in sort of communionally, you know, as a country, as a culture, to listen to the news. <laughs> and, and it wasn't about hate thy neighbor, <laughs> um, get rid of that school teacher, um, yeah. burn that book. Um, it was so different back then. And some of those uh, news anchors, as they were called, were all like members of our family. Like mm -hmm. we really respected them. Um, so there's so little of that anymore. Like, who do you believe? And um, some people are driven in life, but not the majority these days, by authenticity, by being true, by being caring. But, but many are driven by, more by ego, by you know, what, what power they can accumulate in various ways. It could be fame, it could be monetary, it could be political. Um, it's different for different people, but people often can be seduced into that realm. And we, on the other hand, uh, are in a sense, they're, they're playthings, you know, they're mm -hmm. victims. Um, some of the high-tech companies actually have hired psychiatrists, psychologists to help inform uh, some of their programming on their websites to make it more addictive. It's not like uh, they didn't know, <laughs> right. it's the opposite. Um, they are doing some things absolutely intentionally, uh, not just to know where we go and what we like, but to direct where we go and what we will see and be stimulated by. Yes, and none of us think we're programmed. In a way. Yeah, I mean, none of us think we're the ones who are programmed. It's like other people are, but not me. I'm beyond being programmed, that's most of us think. So that goes back, you know, a little bit or two to where we started and my, my call and another way of talking about this. So it's like we're all caught up in a nightmare. Um, and so in, in a way, all of us are in that nightmare, <laughs> you know, um, in so many different ways, you know, whether it's death from COVID, whether it's uh, somebody was assaulted, uh, 
somebody who's now dying on the battlefield in Ukraine um, for different reasons all over, or someone doing a climatic crisis. In, in so many ways, we're, we're all in this kind of you know victimized situation, except for the so-called one percent, you know, live the good life. Um, but in a way, I repeat, it's like a nightmare that we're in. In a nightmare, you're experiencing something very unpleasant, but you also feel relatively powerless. You're very much like in a victim in a nightmare situation. Um, and to go back to the dream metaphor, there are some cultures like the Sinai of Malaysia and the ancient Aboriginal culture, which still exists uh, in Australia, uh, of valuing the dream world, not just daydreaming, what we call night dreams, if you like, um, much more so than we do in a more dismissive way here uh, in Western science. In fact, in, in the Aboriginal system in Australia, they refer to it as the dream time. And they consider that level of awareness, for them, reality, more real than what we call our waking reality, which they experience, of course, as well. But they think that level is even you know, more profound, more real. And they use it partly for healing and for learning things to become wiser in some areas. There is a form of dreaming, which I describe in my book, because I try to also give some techniques for people, not just to understand this, but to work with it and experience it. So lucid dreaming. So in lucid dreaming, by contrast, you learn to be able to have some control of your dream while you're in your dream, the opposite of a nightmare. And a thing you keep hearing me reiterate here as I go all over the place is that connection between imagination and reality. So if you can learn, and lucid dreaming is just one way to do it, if you can learn, anyone can, by the way, and I think I give pretty, uh, I hope, explicit instructions for how to do that, it changes everything. Um, you're no longer, uh, it's like, for example, the difference between Shakespeare saying, you know, all the words of stage and the players on it, which has some truth to it, by the way, and realizing that even though it may have some truth to it, but we're not limited to that. We can do also improvisational acting. <laughs> we, we don't have to be stuck in the same role. We don't have to read the script. <laughs> or, or to follow the same script, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us don't question that. You know, and I, I use also in my book, as you may recall in the beginning, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which I savor ever since philosophy many years ago and, you know, as an undergraduate, you know, the, the notion that our ignorance is what largely imprisons us. And back to where we were, you know, coming from, the distraction we have, the overwhelm we have, um, even losing the ability to think and reflect for ourselves. Um, one thing that we used to have more so in many schools, certainly in high schools, uh, and it was almost common at one point, we're debating clubs, we're debating mm -hmm. societies, which is a very interesting intellectual exercise because to be a good debater, you have to take either side, whether you believe it or not, pro or con, and get into it so deeply and so convincingly that you might win in terms of objective people looking at which is the more convincing presentation argument. And we don't generally do that anymore. So, so people have lost that ability in a sense to see things through other people's eyes or walk in other people's moccasins, so to speak, which is a really good thing you know, to have had, as I say, some of this we did have. And many of us right now are consuming our print information, how should I say, by either smartphones or perhaps on a computer screen or, or a pad. Um, and we're doing very briefly. And very few people these days, proportionally, will look to books or even full magazine articles. They don't have time. There's too right. much out it, there. They, or and, even, even, yeah, even the things on the cell phone could be too long. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I need, but, I need but, three but lines. It's, but it's different because when you're reading a book, for example, it it's inviting you in a way and encouraging you to go potentially deeper. Sometimes, for example, in fiction books, to you know, as an example, we're able, without even trying, to picture in our imagination mm -hmm. the scenes, you know, the characters are described. And sometimes when people actually see a, a movie adaptation of it, they're disappointed. <laughs> their own imagination was richer you know, in some way. When people are looking at their cell phones or, or listening to the news, they also have this confirmation bias. So it's, mm -hmm. it's like their mind's going out and latching on to what I already believe or what I already right. know. And so I don't want to bring anything else into my world because that's disturbing. I only want to have what's in front of me reflect what I already know or believe or agree with. And so they were yeah. all in our little silos with our own little and, belief and, systems. And what you just said is true, and unfortunately, even worse, they're not even aware 
they have that prejudice or bias. Right, right. They really think they're saying things that is as it is, or hearing it, you know, as it is, or thinking it themselves. And, and I, I say that I think we're all. We're, it's it's not like I'm I'm the only one that doesn't do that. <laughs> we all do it. It's just, but you know, you're you're talking about being aware, so that we can be aware that we're doing this. That's the first key to coming out of you know the matrix. I want to read a couple of quotes that I have from your book. Um, that kind of reflect what you're saying. We're born into an edited re reality version of the experiential world. We see things as we are taught to see them. And um, everything you perceive through your senses is like a simulation that immerses you into a virtual reality. Once you learn to identify your egoic self with the simulation, you become emotionally entrapped in it. Um, do you think we're in a simulation? Well, if you mean in a computer simulation, no. And I know there are actually some people who think I, I know some people do from some civilization of the of the future. But fundamentally, what they're saying is wrong because it still goes back to what I say in my book. It comes from God, from source, from universal mind. So even if you're talking about some advanced civilization that has put us in a simulation, where do they come from? Yes, right, right. <laughs> now, where do they get where do they get their consciousness and so on? Um, and how, can they, and how can they also bend time, you know, to be in our future and so on? So, no, um, I mean simulation just like a dream, you know, because often when we're in a dream, we don't know we're in a dream until we wake up, good or bad. So, in a sense, a dream is a simulation. Right. I think also maybe Plato's cave where, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you're seeing the shadows on the wall. Yes. And you're thinking that's what reality is. We're thinking right. that's what reality is and the shadows on the wall. And people who don't know Plato, the story of Plato's cave, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if I remember this right, there are there are people s sitting prisoners. in, yeah, mm -hmm. prisoners, yeah, prisoners watching yeah. the shadows on the cave, but the shadows on the cave are being made by people in the background. And so, but they think that's the reality. One guy escapes, he comes out, he's like, oh my gosh, there's a reality out here. And he comes back to tell everyone and, and they, they think he's the nutcase. Yes. And that what's reality is on the is the shadows right. on the cave. So he yeah. said it was going to free them, but they were too afraid to to believe him. Right, you know, and this is the them. this is yeah. the real problem with awakening. Not, I shouldn't say problem. This is the challenge. This is what's what we're faced with yes. when we go yes. through our own awakening process. And suddenly you're yeah. like, oh my gosh, I see reality in a completely different way. And as you say, we, I can imagine, I can co-create my reality. And it's very different, and we're not trapped. And but everyone's like, no, no, you're crazy. You know, you're you're a nutcase, and this is our problem. This is the way reality mm -hmm. is. Uh, the The process of awakening is very, very painful sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, so is uh, on this level. I, I use expression different levels of, aware, of awareness. Reality <laughs> mentions however you want to put it. Um, you know, birth is also traumatic, both for the mother <laughs> and the baby. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, seriously, it, it's a pretty hard entry for both of them right. into a you know a new future for both. Right, right. Um, I'm not one who says that uh, once you understand what I'm conveying in the book, that everything becomes simply actually easy. <laughs> um, we still have to work at, at things. Um, uh, I, I like in a way the philosophical notion in Buddhism that life is hard and unfair. Um, it's it's largely what you also make of it, which is you know the teaching. Like it's not in Buddhism to eliminate suffering. If I understand correctly, it's to eliminate unnecessary or reduce unnecessary suffering. Um, and so again, it's not that once you understand things, you can have this like absolutely perfect life. Because uh, I think there's reasons why not only that it sort of can't be that way, but why in a, in a strange way, ideally. It wouldn't be the best to be perfect because um, it'd be like, you know, if you had your perfect meal at a restaurant, like in every way, everything, every aspect of it, and the service and the presentation, and even perhaps the cost <laughs> and anyone else around you, and everything was just perfect. But like Groundhog Day, would you continue to go back every day for the rest of your life and still experience that anywhere close to perfection? I doubt it very much. Interesting. Right. You know, so, so, so we need some inherent variety and and uh, challenge too, to be at our best. Yeah, variety is a spice of life. Yes, <laughs> literally. Um, so, the thing that I really underlined in your book was now is a critical time to use our collective power to dream up a better world for our shared dream reality. And I think I think many of us are on different reality timelines. Many of us have different senses of what is catastrophic. There's different sides, different perceptions, different everything. But I think most of us are like, 
you know, like, holy crap, this is, this world's crazy. Like it's crazy. It's going crazier. I think most of us have some sense of things aren't right or things aren't what they could be. And, and many of us who have a longer history, like you talked about how it used to be when we watched the news and it was kind of a, a social thing that we did. And, and, and the news was so different back then. There are children well, not children, they're adults who have never seen news like that, adults on the planet now who've never had these kinds of experiences. So I, I think for them, they think the world may be a little crazy too, but I think it's been crazy for most of their lifetime. And I think those of us who've been on the planet longer see the shift that's happened over the last you know 50 plus years. And like I've been saying to my husband this morning, it's like, I think that everybody... <laughs> who are more seasoned in years, have a propensity to look at the world and go, hmm, you know, it used to be, <laughs> and we're kind of nostalgic about the good old days, what, right, exactly, <laughs> a little nostalgic about how it used to be when we rode our bikes in the streets and we didn't, mm -hmm. we weren't worried about all the things that we're worried about. But there's also a sense that, yes, that is true, but but things are accelerating and things seem to be more and more negative. And we, we do seem like we're on the brink of even World War III right now. So there's this is a serious time. So it's not okay to just go, la, 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 you know. No, you know, when, when my book, uh, my, when, when my manuscript was completed, which was in the fall of uh, 2021, it actually came out on November 15th onto the, uh, the market as such. Um, back then, I noted that the doomsday clock Mm -hmm. was set at an alarming record in the short 100 seconds before midnight. And midnight was considered the end, annihilation. Uh, and it measures things like probability of nuclear war, um, pandemic mismanagement, by the way, uh, artificial intelligence, by the way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's in there too. Um, so it was 100 seconds again to midnight, which was alarmingly close. It just didn't move that close. Uh, and that was the fall again in 2021. And as of just several weeks ago, they came out with their latest evaluation of the state of the world and various risk factors, considering everything, including climatic changes. And now it, they moved it to 90 seconds before midnight. Uh, and these are not um, alarmists. These are, these are esteemed scientists internationally from, from many different areas. So now, when I look back, when I wrote that book again, that was before the Russian invasion. Yeah. yeah that was before yeah. runaway inflation. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was before the increasing turbulence in your American political system, threatening some very you know, basic institutions going forward. Let's talk about what we can do, what we can, how we can use our imagination. And because I do think that what can happen, I know this can happen, we can get really fixated on the doomsday stuff or what what is all we get fixated we can get a, it's kind of a lower density place or a low vibration place and we can get pulled into it i think it's like it's like the temptation of the ego to get drawn into it. it's like a quicksand and then we can't pull ourselves out because we're going down and so but i i fundamentally believe <laughs> in the divine within in us and i fundamentally believe in the light and love and our capacity as divine beings having a earthly experience and i i do believe in our 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 capacities our gifts our our gift of imagination which is just the beginning to picture what's possible and that's what i said about a half hour ago so there's a failure of imagination that when we get sucked into the quicksand versus think about how we can get out and not only how we can get out but what beautiful world we can create and so what i'd like to talk about then is what steps can we take to activate our imagination and to start dreaming a new reality. Well, I, I can give you some very you know concrete um, things going forward, but let me go back and reference what you said too about you know your your understanding and your beliefs, uh, and you know come back and quoting uh, some parts of the Bible. Um, God is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. So to come back to your question about how do we maybe work with imagination and dreaming in a different way, maybe by going back and reflecting, and I try to explain in my book why, uh, it's not something just to believe in, but it's totally proven <laughs> in so many different ways, uh, scientifically and logically, philosophically. Let me go back to your question now. So if God is love, and if mystics like a psychiatrist, R.M. Buck, wrote of his experience, spontaneous physical experience, 
and he experiences unity with everything. I came to what he thought was the insight, but the fundamental, the most important thing in the universe is love. And he was coming really just respect, which is a mystical experience, but he was also a psychiatrist, you know, and, and I'm not just dismissing it or being a schizophrenic. Um, and then in my book, I explain that contrary on this level reality, again, as I speak about it, we're taught that the head brain is what produces our mind, our consciousness. And I point out, strangely enough, there's no evidence for it. There's not even a theoretical explanation for how it could. Mm -hmm. But even back on that level, if we want to talk physical body, well, then we have these three brains. We also have a heart brain, and we have a gut brain, the microbiome. Let's talk about the heart brain for a moment, because it's uh, related to your question, I think. I hope. <laughs> um, the, the heart has its own nervous system. It has neurons, like brain cells in the head brain, about 40,000. It has its own memory system. It has more nerves going up to influence and control the brain than the brain has nerves that control the heart. The heart can also produce its own hormones, like oxytocin, the love hormone, by the way, uh, which you know connects. Um, so if, there, if we were guided more by the heart, there's expression, you know, heartfelt wisdom um, or heartfelt message, you know, uh, we use that term as if it's like deeper and more valued and experientially, and we don't really have time to go this in any detail, but when you think of how you feel in this level of your body, your heart area, when you're in the presence of someone you really enjoy being with, someone you love, you just enjoy being with, there's a softness, a warmth in that area. And by contrast, when it's someone whose views you abhor or are fearful of, there's a, a tense, a tightness, a coldness in that area. And if we use that almost like a compass to guide us more in how we interact with people, to come more from the heart in terms of the warmer connection, then we're in what some people have called, you know, it's a core frequency that connects us all from the heart. If we also go back to working with eyes, you know, poetically, many of us have heard the expression, eyes are the windows of the soul. Um, and I'm well, that's just an expression. On the other hand, as some of people might know, the, the back of the eye, which is what's responsive to light, the retina, is actually brain tissue. It is part of the brain. So in a sense, it is the part of the physical brain that's most, you know, external in terms of where our skull is. When you care for somebody, and they're in your presence, you usually look at them in the eyes. When people first fall in love, they become almost entranced looking into each other's eyes. And unfortunately, they often forget what got them there <laughs> in terms of the connection. <laughs> That's true, and back to you know, distraction. So put, trying to make this more tangible. So if people in general be more guided by the wisdom of love, that love connects us, Hate and anger separates us. You can actually learn to use, in a sense, a sensitivity of your own heart area to guide you like a compass and where you're coming. You could also partly use, as you understand this, as a judgment when you're hearing other people speaking, whether they're, they're politicians, preachers, uh, police officers, someone in a riot, whatever it might be. Are they coming from anger or are they coming from love? If they're coming from anger and fear, that's a warning sign for you, at least like traffic light, yell light, pause, do something you don't do too much, reflect, think. Are they speaking the truth? Are they really leading me in a good direction? Mm -hmm. And we don't do that enough, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So again, um, if we were more comfortable looking at each other in the eyes, and I mean even strangers, and I'm not talking about steering contests, obviously, but just making more of that eye contact, which unfortunately during the pandemic, so much of us have lost. And it's whatever we have technology in part, like Zoom yeah. video, but still not quite the same thing, right. as you know. Right. Um, so even those two simple things to, to be more guided, I say, by the importance of love as connection, using your heart and your eyes and the physical realm to partly help you with that. And, and the, the guidance of which, you know, it makes sense logically to me now, scientifically, of golden rule. I mean, if we're all connected, of course we should love our neighbors, ourselves. Of course we should do unto others who have no unto us. Because at some level we're all connected. Like it's, it's not that otherwise you're a sinner uh, or you're breaking a law. No, because your life goes better. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that is 
that is the rule of the universe. I mean, that, there's like one law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's one mm-hmm. law, really. We don't need all these other laws. That's the one law. If we just live by that one law, yeah. a lot of people call that natural law, God's law, that then, you know, we wouldn't need anything. I know. Um, and and yeah. using that other term you said, you know, God's law, natural law. I try to explain in my book that scientifically now, it doesn't have to be a matter of faith. We can prove the reality of these concepts in terms of their wisdom and, and their their benefit. Even coming back to the heart, when we are more caring for other people, which we call altruism, you know, at some level is just being more tender to someone and comforting them. For so it might be more charitably doing something on a larger scale to help someone in need. But when we're coming from our heart in a helpful way, no matter how it is, our stress level, our stress hormones go down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if we're very stressed ourselves, if we redirect our attention to be helpful to needs of someone else, it reduces our stress. Back to my point, like this is science-based now. It's not just about faith. Right. It works. Life goes better. Right, right. <laughs> so, and, and I think that the golden rule has been, <laughs> we've known about mm-hmm. that for thousands of years and we're still having trouble with it. So what can we do with the imagination? What about the dream it to do it? What, how do we apply that? What do we want to, to dream to do? Well, I think we have a, a dearth of, of, the, of good leadership in the world right now, and sadly, almost at all levels, partly because people have lost the ability to think more deeply for themselves, as you know, and plus they're so disconnected from each other, there's not the synergy and collaboration. So I think to partly realize that what we're experiencing now, as I said earlier, it's more like a nightmare. It's not like just that's how things are and have to be. Right. It can be changed. So we can, and, have a, we can create this as a lucid dream. And, and to imagine, for example, if, if you could think beyond some of the limiting beliefs, the filters um, of what religion you come from, what political ideology you generally subscribe to, um, what home team you support. <laughs> and if you could remove those types of filters and just look more objectively, you know, who is good, who is better, uh, who should we support, who should we follow? But you have to use your reflective ability. You know, um, I made a quick reference before about Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge, and how we were tempted out of that by ego, by emotion. Um, We need to go back to knowing. We need to go back to greater awareness. We need to be more humble in our assumptions of what we think we understand and know. and again, try to go back to where we were before about the mess the physical world is in right now. If we were so smart in science, really, that we understood how things work, how could it be so messed up physically right now? And I don't mean just climate change. I mean, we have phenomenal chemical pollution all over the world right now, which is affecting all types of species genetically and will for eons to come if we survive that long as a planet. Well, we can solve <laughs> we can solve some of these pretty fast. But let's but but back to the, the good part. Yeah. So if if we recognize that as we experience things right now, it's not the way it has to be, and the people who are, are our current leaders, authorities, maybe they are where they should be, and maybe not. Why take it for granted? You have a mind, use it, think, reflect, question. Share. And as we become more aware of the craziness we've been caught up in, I would hope the sanity again would prevail, so to speak, and we'd realize more our commonality. We're all in this together. Many years ago, the architect and philosopher, Buckminster Fuller, used the expression, metaphor, spaceship Earth, you know, saying like we're all like on this same spaceship. And at some level, we have to cooperate. There's only so many supplies and there's only so many, you know, waste facilities. <laughs> uh, we have to work this out as a system. Uh, and that, he wasn't coming from a mystical point of view at all. He was an architect and some of a philosopher. But that's the notion we, we have to get now. So how do you begin by, as I said, visually and by the heart, start connecting and relating differently? How about using different choices in how you, uh, what you focus on, what news media, if any, you listen to anymore. Maybe invest more in actual meetings if you can safely with other people. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you what 
how, how my world has changed in the last three years. I don't listen to any news media anymore. I don't do any left and right politics, any of that. None, none of it makes any sense to me. The sides don't make any sense to me. I can see them now as manufactured divisions. And, and you know, we, we have to transcend these manufactured divisions um, and, and, and not take the propaganda that's coming in and start living, like you say, as the golden rule. And, and I also believe that we are, I, I believe in individual sovereignty, and I also believe that we are one, <laughs> we're all connected. Um, and, and, and like last night, I was anticipating this conversation. I was thinking about imagination. What do I want to imagine? Like, like if I was a child, and I was, and somebody said, what world do you want to imagine? You know, now a child, I think you even refer to that in your book that, you know, that the child is the kingdom of God is, you know, be, at, be as a child to enter the kingdom of God. That's in scripture. And it takes a child's mind, a beginner's mind to be able to really go, what world would I want? Because a child would have no problem drawing, you know, whatever they want, the sun and the flowers and the people. That's and right. They don't have the filters and, we have. They don't have any of that. They <laughs> right. would just do that. Yeah. So yeah. I was thinking about this last night and what I, the, the, my, the closing thought I had, I think before I, I slept was my, was this statement. I envision of an explosion of love flowing across the entire planet. So these are the words that came to me. And so then I started like, drawing that like in my head like what would an explosion of love look like i mean we know what explosion of bombs look like and and then i questioned should i even use the word explosion i'm like yes that's the word <laughs> and so then i'm i'm in playing with this and creating a picture of of what would it look like if all of a sudden our hearts just all open at the same time and we lay down these divisions that are false completely false and they are uh they're they're created by some, the one percent, or whoever it is out there who are well, puppet it, it masters. Well, uh, sadly, to a great degree. <laughs> I think but, so. You know, we've also, some, in some ways, allowed the habit. We've been asleep, you know, on our watch, so to speak. Well, and I, I, um, I envision a world. I, I think, but the last person I talked to on the podcast, we mm -hmm. talked about spirituality and government. I don't even think we need government to rule us, that if we really recognize our amazing divine nature, and if we live by the golden rule and understood that, yes. and knew we, we could work with our differences without having all of this government That's and these right. leaders who are leading us astray most of the time anyway, and leading us into war, for God's sakes. And, and there are some groups out there that, I, that I'm involved with right now that are looking at alternative models of governance and living. Yes. You know, it, it's more like smaller communities. Right, uh, right. Where you know they want. <laughs> And, and you know it's it's and you it's make the agreements. So this is what my yeah, community is exactly. going to do, and you know exactly. this is what this community over there mm -hmm. does. And mm -hmm. and you know we can imagine these things. And I do think you do make the point in your book that that a beginner's mind be like a child again to enter the kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, you you have the scripture where there's no vision, the people perish. <laughs> where I think we are right now. Right, right. Largely. So so I just encourage everyone who's listening to start creating this vision. Like, what would it look like if an explosion of love just Flew, was flowing across the planet and landing in everyone's hearts. What would that look like? Because I don't think we really know what that would look like. You know, one of the things that I was also hoping for for this book, um, and that is that it would provide a different type of resource, particularly for the clergy of all denominations, and I mean all denominations, to help the people in their congregations or bring people into their congregations Again, not because you're supposed to, because this is the family's, you know, religion and heritage, uh, or you'll be punished, you know. Uh, no, I don't do that. Don't. We don't do that. <laughs> no, I know, but, uh, you know, in the world broadly right yeah. now as it is. But because this is the truth. Yeah. And uh, we'll explain it to you. It's not like we were told this was the truth and just believe it, but we'll explain it to you. This is how reality works. This is how the one can be many. This is, as I say, we can be amphibious beings. We can live on more than one level at a time. We, we, we can be with the one, our source, God, and we can also manifest, individuate temporarily into what seem to be like individual things, people, uh, other sentient beings, temporarily, just like the waves, you know, come and go in an ocean. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so I kind of want to start wrapping up. Mm -hmm. um, I do know that um, I, I wrote down a few more things in your book that I, I think might be good to 
just kind of close on, and you can I'll okay. give you the last mm -hmm. statements. But you have, I think, I wrote down key factors, intention, imagination, and belief. Mm -hmm. And then I also wrote down, befriend your own attention, choose to cultivate an optimistic mindset, and develop soft eyes, perceive negative space. It's a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> Those are things so that came in the book. Which price the question? <laughs> which, so I just, I don't know, let's just talk a little bit about that and let's close. I think that befriend your own attention, choose mm -hmm. to cultivate an optimistic mindset and develop soft eyes are like three things that people can start to do, like today. So they're all about, again, awareness, you know, d different levels of, of awareness. And with soft eyes, normally when we look at things, we sort of look at them individually, we focus on them individually. Uh, with soft eyes, you're almost looking more at the space between things. You're working more with your peripheral vision rather than your central vision. And it's a different experience of con in consciousness. You know, it's subtle, but as I say, I try to give people actual experiences in, in, from the exercises in the book so they don't have to just believe it or not scientifically. Um, and that's the reason. And so in soft eyes, you're seeing the space between things which connects everything. With our regular hard eyes, we see things individuated yeah. separately. So that was the you know the notion on, on that one. Um, befriending your yeah. own attention. I'm sorry. Uh, befriending your own attention is is also isn't that just paying attention like like being friends with what you're with your so, attention so, so you can so recognize much of much of the time these days. Our, our mind, as I mentioned earlier, is taken up by, you know, either looking at our uh, smartphones or wondering uh, what's come in <laughs> or thinking it's something we want to send out. It's addictive. And, and, and so it is addictive, by the way. It, it totally is. It's designed that um, way. <laughs> it, it literally on a dopamine level of the, of, of the brain, how it works in terms of the chemistry of it. And again, a lot of, as I mentioned, website companies are taking advantage of that for various reasons. Uh, and as with us knowing about it, we're like, again, just running the maze, not knowing it. Mm -hmm. So in Befriend Your Attention, it means become more aware, first of all, of being aware and being a center to some degree of awareness. I talk about the notion of centering in the present, in the here and now. The, the past, as we know it from our own memories or from records or uh, books or you know, uh, videos we might see of the past, whatever it might be, is gone. It's past. In the future, even though we may strongly fear or anticipate certain things, may or may not happen the way we think it may happen because it doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. The only thing that exists right now, the only reality we all experience right now, literally, as people are listening and watching to us, is right now, this moment. And in this moment, we're fully aware. And in that awareness, we can become more aware of our choices of what we want to focus on, what will better serve us or benefit others, instead of just being caught up as they were, you know, in the maze or influenced you know, by peer pressure, or what other factors it might be, but not really coming from our reflection about what do we really value and intend, desire, and choose to do. And then choosing to cultivate an optimistic mindset. I think that's a good place to... <laughs> so that goes back to the notion, again, partly of you know filters and lenses. And uh, I, I made a brief reference to it earlier. I <laughs> made a lot of references, <laughs> not too much. Um, that we can choose to look at things in different ways. It's not like it's all just fixed. And when you look at things in different ways, like I did at Michigan University, convinced to give me two degrees and great right. for it. it. It's empowering. It, 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 it can make things happen that otherwise cannot happen for you. So it's a much more you know, resourceful way at looking at things. Yeah, an optimistic mindset. And also the other thing mm -hmm. that I took from your McGill um, example mm -hmm. was the, the board where you, the goal is beyond... Yes. Beyond the board, so that you know exactly. the, the kid who's going to hit the board and, and yeah. break the board, they're not focused on the obstacle. So we can't be focused on the obstacle. We can't be focused on how terrible things are. We got to look at what 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 is beyond that as we exactly. we That's move right. our what, energy what, towards what, it. What lays beyond that we can envision, yeah. realize, intuit. Yeah, that 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 is desirable. That is you know beneficial. Yeah, and, and that's I, empowering. I mean, little little kids break boards and they don't hurt their hands. I know it is amazing. I remember, mm -hmm. I remember that, and I remember doing that myself. Mm -hmm. I remember doing that with my daughters. <laughs>
<laughs> it's really amazing. But thinking beyond the obstacle, thinking beyond the obstacle, yeah, yeah. and that's where we can dream and imagine. Well, Howard, this has been a pleasure talking to you about your book, Dream It to Do It. Do you have any last 30 seconds what you want to put out there, or are we good with what we've said? Uh, I really appreciate your time and your, your viewer and listeners' attention. And I, I wish you all to be open to what I'm sharing because it can make a difference fundamentally to your life, to our world. And we don't have a lot of time to take advantage of that difference. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And um, again, I, I think we need to focus our imagination on what's beyond the obstacle <laughs> as, we, as we move through it. And also, I kind of want to leave people with this idea of this explosion of, of love. <laughs> <laughs> flowing across the planet mm -hmm. and helping us to recreate a new world because I think it's possible. I, I definitely think it's possible. So we all got to get to work with I it. Do too, so. or I wouldn't be doing this. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right, thank you so much, Howard. And thank you, listeners. And I now close the Spiritual Forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being. Thank you.